Turn in your Bible to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. You know, as I have the privilege of standing in the pulpit in multiple places and multiple occasions, I, I, I have a number of different hats that I, I get to wear. I get to wear, at times, the hat of a teacher, of opening up this word and this is what this particular passage means. And then I have the privilege of, at times, doing it as a pastor, as a shepherd. What is it that the sheep need to be grazing on in this particular moment? It's what shepherds do. They move sheep into places where they can best be cared for and nurtured. But then there are moments that I put on yet another hat, and it's, it's strictly a revelatory hat, a prophetic hat, if you wish, of trying to look into that which God is bringing us into in this next season. Now, how many of you know that God is never impressed with a 12-month period of time? All right? We get real excited, come on, about days and, and weeks and months and years. And so when we say that this is something that God is doing this year, please at 1159.59, don't come looking at me with stones to stone the prophet if it doesn't happen in exactly that time frame. We know in the book of Daniel, God says this, he changes what times and seasons. And so it's a general season, a time frame, whereby which God speaks to us. But if we look ahead... I believe God is having certain things that he wants to say to us. Now, by way of prophetic integrity and accountability, of which there's amazingly little of it today, last week, last year, rather, I, 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 around this same time frame, I spoke a message entitled Course Correction. Does anybody remember that word at all? All right. We got three people at least lying to me to make me feel better because I am insecure. Thank you very much. But that word was out of Acts 27 that there were going to be certain storms and winds that were going to begin to blow, whereby which God would blow us into, if you wish, a course correction for that coming moment. Did that, those of you that heard that word, did it come true at all in your life? All right. Okay. Those of you that raised your hand, please collect your $20 at the end of this service. But I believe it's important that we come back and reference what was said by way of accountability and judgment, because it's only from that platform, that perspective, whereby which anything that I say to you this morning has any credibility whatsoever. Please nod your head to that. And this is not done, this is surprisingly not done much. All right. Romans, the eighth chapter. Turn here, if you will. We're going to begin in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and is in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. 
But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, let's talk about what this passage really means. Because there's a number of ways that we approach Scripture. We approach Scripture from the standpoint of what audience, what did the author, in this case, the Apostle Paul, to which, to what was he referring? He was referring to something, if you wish, apocryphal, eschatological, nice big words, which means that in the end, this is how it's going to unfold. So he was referring to something that is yet to occur. Even for you and for me, it hasn't occurred yet. And yet, I believe that there is application of this word for us specifically. How many of you know that's how the word of God works? I mean, these, these letters, these epistles that Paul wrote were written to a specific church at a specific time in history addressing specific issues. And yet, because it is a living word, because the Holy Spirit chose to place these in Scripture, they still have the capacity and the power to speak to us in a contemporary setting. It's how we apply this word. And I want to apply this passage out of Romans 8 this morning. This year, as, as I was praying back in the fall, God gave me a singular word. And it was the word groaning. And I groaned when I heard it. I thought, God, choose another. Please. You know, money, hair growth, weight loss. I mean, something else. I mean, blessing. Come on, I'm a good Western Christian, but not the word groaning. I mean, of all the words that heaven could have spoken in that moment, that's not the one I really wanted to hear. And let me say that the difficulty in preparing this message was profound. Because as Pastor David and others that stand in this pulpit can tell you, there's unique pressure to preach happy. Come on. There's unique pressure to preach therapeutically. How is this about me? And there's particular pressure to stand here prophetically and proclaim beautiful, great things year in after year out. My wife and I travel quite a bit and, and, and we are in the company of some folks that if I said their name, you would know them. Maybe you have some of their books. And we've heard them year after year after year now going on 10, 12, 15 years. And it's amazing. Some of them are preaching the same double portion blessing, Jubilee word every year. Can I help you? Every year can't be the year of Jubilee. It just don't work that way. Come on. And so if it's not a blessing word, it's a weather-watching word. Ooh. This is the year to invest in Bitcoin. You need to get out of traditional currencies. This is a moment to go buy gold, spam, and water. And learn to load your own. All right, never mind. So there's a unique pressure 
to go in one or two directions here. One Jewish scholar put it this way. The prophet, by the very nature of his calling, is a tragic figure. My wife's been telling me I've been tragic for years for different reasons, though. He has fierce loyalty, a fierce loyalty toward God, and he has a broken heart over a lost nation. But I would expand that definition slightly. And he's fiercely zealous for Christ's church to be the visible bride, the earthly representation of the kingdom, and all of that which Christ designed for it and purchased on its behalf. Groaning is something that sounds inherently negative, but as you begin to look into it, we begin to see it's a groaning that brings something glorious with it. And I've entitled this message, From Groaning to Glory. You know, saints, we groan to obtain, we groan to gain, but could we groan to come into the glory that God has for you and for me and for this church? And I want to give us a few points this morning to highlight this. The first is identification. Verse 15 and 16, Romans 8 again. You know this passage well. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, capital S, spirit, pneuma, third person of God, the definite article, the spirit. God so intent on this that he moves on the inside to fulfill this ministry. And it's by him we cry, Abba, Father. And it's the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I believe one of the very first things that God is wanting to do in this moment is bring a further clarification and identification of his fatherhood. How many of you know that fatherhood is a station, a place of calling, of honor, has been under attack for generations? Come on. As a matter of fact, everything, quite frankly, if I could just, with that, with, 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 with the, hmm, with the caution and fear of being labeled a misogynist this morning, could I submit to you that almost everything male has uniquely been under attack? And ladies, that doesn't diminish anything of who you are, what God's called you to do. But there's something that has been under assault. For generations. But the real attack is against fatherhood. Because you can't understand God until you can understand daddy. And you can't understand fatherhood until you can understand masculinity. And we see these things under open assault. Now, let me just say, human, human fathers... We're idiots. Come on. One of my children's is in this room. I messed her up. I didn't intend to. I fed her good. But we do the best we can because we're flawed. We're sin. There's sin. There's sin nature. The whole hashtag me too. I mean, men's got problems, but we can't just negate 
everything that God has made that is supposed to, supposed to point to himself and just say, I'm done with it. It doesn't work that way. And I believe God's coming to reveal himself as Abba in a new and renewed way. Verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. So many times I see folk trying to get theirs. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. Come on. And we, hmm. But there's only one problem. We're trying to inherit first without first having a revelation of the father from which the inheritance comes. And we wonder, why doesn't the inheritance work, Pastor David? Why does it seem to be? So, because the priority has been in the wrong place. The emphasis has been on the wrong syllable. Because you can't inherit until you first know from whom the inheritance comes. You can't inherit until you first know who daddy is. Until you know that you are a son or a daughter and you have the right to this inheritance. Wow. Some years ago, I was having a dialogue with daddy. And I wasn't happy with his performance in the moment. If your children ever pointed out some unhappiness with your performance as a parent, come on. Children are very, I don't know, maybe I was the only one that their children would point out. You didn't. Yeah, I know. And I was having this moment with God. God, you didn't. God said, you want me to be a better father? Yeah, I do. He said, try being a better son. I thought, okay. And you know, there are identifiers as sons that don't cost us a thing. The fruit of the Spirit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, you know these. It's only one thing about fruit. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, theologian, martyr, 20th century, he said, the tree has no idea how it produces its fruit. I mean, I mean, listen to this. Fruit is always the miraculous, the created. It's never the result of willing. It's always a growth. The fruit of the Spirit's a gift of God, and only he can produce it. And those who bear it know as little about it as the tree knows of its fruit. They only know the power of him on whom their life depends. So you cannot produce fruit like this. It won't work. The fruit of the Spirit is simply a manifestation that the Spirit is there and the fruit's going to grow. Now, we can create the right environment, yes, for it. But let me just tell you, if God's on the inside of you, fruit's coming off of your life. So fruit doesn't cost us anything. The gifts of God, oh, he, he talks in tongues or he prophesies. He must, well, but the gifts are what? They're a gift. Love. You will know them by their love. But guess what? We love because he first. There we go. And so all of these identifiers, for the most part, don't cost us a thing. But then we keep reading. Verse 17. Now it gets a little more complicated, saints. We're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, say if indeed. 
And whenever you see that word, if in the Bible, strap up. Because the requirement's coming. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Everybody say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You know, suffering is not a word that we use much in the West. I mean, I'm sorry, but how about it, guys? I'm sorry, but I just don't think it's ever going to be a popular conference theme down in Orlando. (laughs) Suffering 2018. Bring the whole fam. Learn. You and Mickey and join the theme park. Suffering. (laughs) Manifestation of your sonship. (laughs) I don't know that there's going to be a lot of registration for that one. I'm sorry, a blessing conference, a gifts conference, a prophetic conference. I mean, yeah, we'll go down and, you know, but a suffering conference, I don't need no part of that. Wow. And, you know, we talk about suffering in the West. They're mere inconveniences. You know, the popcorn goes another 20 seconds and we're ready to just, you know, we want to sue Orville, you know, or something. I mean, we just feel like something wrong with life. My wife and I, again, we just came back from this conference in Bolivia and there was a, one of our pastors managed to get out of Venezuela. Anybody read the news? Venezuela, 20 million percent inflation, whatever it is. This man's living on the equivalent right now of $19 a month. And that's even if he can get his money out of the bank and find anything to buy. First night of the conference, we took, we took up an offering and we just gave it to him. He finally came back to us. He said, please, if I carry it back to Venezuela, the authorities will take it away from me. Would you deposit it in my American bank? A boy puts a whole lot of things in perspective as to suffering. Oh, but how we avoid them. How we eisegete scripture in such a way to point to the promise and to the blessing without the prerequisite identification of our sonship and the suffering that comprises and identifies that sonship. And to the extent that we avoid suffering, we create a false theology and philosophy of life whereby which we can and should avoid suffering. How many times, particularly in our little niche of the charismatic Pentecostal world, have we had somebody say to us, if you had more faith. You ever heard that one? If you just had more faith. Well, tell Jesus that. Can you imagine some modern Pentecostal up in Jesus' face? Hey, champ, if you had more faith, you wouldn't have faith. You wouldn't have to do this cross thing. Now, I'm not trying to be blasphemous in what I'm saying. But how many of you know how absolutely incorrect this is? Some of you I've walked with in this room, I've known you for a decade plus, maybe two. I know your lives and I know some of the suffering that you've been through, some that you're in right now. And yet as a result, many of you are closer to Christ today as a result of the suffering. It hasn't drawn you further away. It's drawn you closer to. And your manifestation as sons and daughters has been manifested as a result of the difficulties 
by which your heavenly father, yes, has allowed to happen in your life. I better move on quick. I'm in trouble, David, already. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him. I don't know about you, but I got a lot of scriptures that I pray. That ain't one of them. That is not in my top 10 list right there. I get up every morning, God, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. (laughs) And our identification as sons, and yes, our maturity as sons, it's not possible outside of hardship. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. That's why I only come once a year. (laughs) David can fix this. We see in Jesus, not just a week of suffering that we honor and, and, and we celebrate his passion, the passion week, if you wish. But Jesus suffered every moment of his life separated from the glory of heaven and the perfect fellowship of the father. Every moment he was here in human form that was suffering. And while we share that suffering, there's another suffering that you and I have that Jesus didn't have. You see, Jesus, we understand, fully God, fully man. It's one of these things that just don't try to think about because your brain will melt. But this is just, this is who God was. This is who this Jesus was. But you see, Jesus understood that part of What God had called him, the Father had called him to do was his what? His will. Not mine, but his. And saints, let me me just say to you that doing the will of the Father will always entail something. It's going to cost you something. It's not going to always be comfortable. It's not going to be a happy Holy Ghost Hebrew hot moment for you. It's going to cost you. But there's a difference in how Jesus suffered in you because, you see, Jesus, being fully God, didn't need to be changed into anything. And this takes me to my second point. You and I have to be changed. It's called transformation. The first is identification as sons and daughters. The suffering that brings that identification. But the second then is transformation. Verse 22 again, Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning at us in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul personifies the entire cosmos here. And says that something in all of creation is groaning to wait to see something. But there's something that happens then, not only externally, but internally in you and in me. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption. Are we groaning, those saints? Are we groaning? As we look back one chapter in Romans 7 and we see the Apostle Paul, man, the things that I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Man, I am jacked up. 
This is not early Paul. This is not just a little post Damascus Road experience Paul. This is Paul toward the end of his ministry and his life. This is Romans. This is Paul's magnum opus, if you wish. This is a man that's got some miles on the odometer and we get a peek into the stuff that's still going on in his own soul. But are we groaning for change? True transformation. The church has relied on a whole lot of things in order to make itself known over the years. And rightly so. These are all good. Proclamation. Be it through teaching, be it through evangelism, be, be, be it through, you know, letting, letting this gospel be made known. Proclamation. It's wonderful. The demonstration. Power, signs, and wonders. Paul said, I didn't come to you just with wise and persuasive words, but with a what? A demonstration of the Spirit's power. And we love it when the Spirit's power is moving among us, do we not? Ha! <laughs> Proclamation, demonstration. We got a third one now. It's called presentation. All we need is about $5 million worth of video screens and sound systems. And, you know, we, we, we know we're going to get our social media presence down and we're going to search engine optimize, baby. We're going to look good. We have a special word in the church growth circles. It's called attractional. Attractional. Let's get this thing looking good because people walk in and they'll say, woo. Proclamation, demonstration, presentation. How many of you know, though, that those three things have left the culture amazingly unaffected? Yawn. It's a snooze fest. Why? Because there are other louder voices out there. But can I submit to you the one thing that will change the culture that the culture is yet to see? It's called transformation. And where all of these other things, which are largely external, have completely, have completely failed to change a culture from the inside out, to barely even garner any attention. Let me just tell you what the greatest miracle that heaven does. It's the transformation of a man or a woman. And I'm not talking about just a little modification of sanctification where we just don't cuss quite as much. Somebody gave me a t-shirt. It says, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. <laughs> and so we come into the church, JC, and we, we, we kind of, we clean it up. Hallelujah. <laughs> Good morning, sister. And so we, you know, we get our church on. We don't cuss quite as much. But I'm not talking about just behavior modification. You can do that with medication. I'm talking about transformation. I'm talking about the transformation where somebody looks at you and say, you are not the same person I knew. The greatest compliment my wife gives me is this one right here. You're not the same man I married. Praise God. 
And by the way, that's why we're still married. But the reality is, is the transformation of God taking hold in your life? And we want it with no cost. Here's the problem with transformation. It requires mortification. It requires death. Remember back in biology class, the butterfly. It starts out as a bug. Oh, icky caterpillar. And then it goes into his little thing. And then it becomes a caterpillar. But you know what we fail to realize is between the caterpillar and the butterfly, this thing happens. It's called chrysalis, where the caterpillar becomes sort of a butterfly smoothie for a moment. It doesn't look like a caterpillar, and it doesn't look like a butterfly, but it's this thing in between that doesn't look like the past. Stay with me. It doesn't look like the past. It doesn't fully look like the future, but it's sort of in this state right in between. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? You are a butterfly smoothie. And we would love to think that at some point we're just going to wake up one morning and our old caterpillar is going to have wings. It doesn't work that way. You got to get lost. I mean, throughout scripture, John the Baptist, less of me, more of him. What did Paul write? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Wow. And in this process of transformation, again, it cost us. 1 Peter 1 speaks about these trials of greater worth than gold, he says, which perishes even though refined by fire. You know what God's gold is? It's the testing of your faith. Revelation, the third chapter, the Spirit speaking to the churches. And he's kind of reading out, if you wish, the church in Laodicea. But he says in verse 18 in Revelation 3, he says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in fire. Say, oh, I told you he's going to tell us to buy gold. There it is. No, that's what I'm talking about. Gold refined by fire. Guess what that is? It's the testing of your faith. It's the sufferings, the momentary sufferings that you're going through in order to receive the power of transformation coming into your life. You know, it says in the word, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You know, the very manifestation of your sonship is the fact that God's in your stuff. Oh, God, if you really love me, you would let me. No. And no, this hurts you more than it hurts me. And yes, I'm going to leave a mark. Everything Dr. Dobson told us not to do. But you see, I'm going to put my mark of fatherhood on your life. 
I'm amazed many times at watch, watching believers and they get into this moment of trial and testing and they start to bind and loose and rebuke and smack and make up every demon power and put how to, in, in Jesus and, and just everything they know how to do. They begin to rebuke the very thing that God is bringing in order to conform them into his image. Hmm, y'all ain't getting this yet, but I'm going to keep preaching until you do. But you see, in this, in this moment of transformation, in the correction that's part and parcel with it, number three, God's coming for confrontation and separation. I believe God's coming, first of all, to confront motives. It's going to be a confrontation of motivation. It's not just what we do. It's not just why we do it. But it's for whom are we doing it? Man, I don't know about you, but again, I've, I've learned to kind of get the outside pretty cleaned up. You know, and a lot of the, a lot of the inside stuff's at work, but most of the time now, the real issue for me is not why I'm doing a thing, but for whom am I doing it? Oh, here you go, God. Here's my 10. Okay. But are we giving as an act of worship? Or are we terrified if we don't, a curse is going to land on our money? Are we paying the 10 as an insurance policy? Or are we giving the 10 as an act of worship to a God that needs the 110? Who wants it? Who deserves it? Wow. Motivation. I don't know about you, but this, this last fast we were on, five days. I've been on longer fast as of many of you. But, you know, I, I found myself getting into this and like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get this done. Come on. I'm going to get to Friday. It's going to be Band of Brothers. Yeah, we did it. Toughed it out. Let's go eat. Find some carbs. <laughs> and I got about halfway in the midst of that fast. And God just came and he just busted me up. He just said, why are you doing this? So you can have bragging rights on Friday night or because it's something that I'm calling you to and I'm calling you closer to me. And I'm like, whoops. Something, something even as seemingly right as fasting or prayer or giving. All the, the disciplines that we do, we read our Bible and we feel better about ourselves. And we do, but that should become the byproduct, not the product of why we practice spiritual disciplines. Because if we're doing it for us when we don't do it, then we have the ancillary condemnation that goes along with it. Mm. Jesus said, you know what? I got you figured out. You're not following me for me. You want a fish sandwich. Man, I know. He said, I mean, he just went right to the heart of the thing. You're not after me. You're after what I can give you. And even as we need to test our own motivations and spirits, we need to begin. And I believe this, that God wants us to begin to test those around us a bit. 
How many of you know that the whole thing of fake news is not a new problem? Fake news have been around a long time. First John talks about testing every spirit to see whether they are from God. And we live in a moment that words are multiplying by the day. Words coming to the church of ease and blessing. And they emanate routinely from voices that sound amazingly credible and even use scriptures to prove themselves. Jeremiah 29 said, oh, I know that one. Yeah, but back up a few verses. Verse 8 says, don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you and don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. And I believe there's a coming confrontation with that which is not truth in all arenas of society, be it government, be it the church. Entertainers trying to be theologians. Whether in the media, that's one problem, but in the church. Entertainers that sit at this desk speak week after week rather than prophets and teachers. And how many of you know that a partial truth is still not truth? Because most lies have enough truth to make them sticky. Acts 20, 27, Paul says, I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Another translation says the whole counsel of God. And I believe that is that cornerstone that God is placing. Whereby which that cornerstone is not just the most visible, but it is where everything comes into alignment that's built next to it. And he says in Isaiah, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And I believe inspection and confrontations coming to us. And in that, I believe there's also a divine separation. Matthew 25, and I don't have time to really call this out much, but he talks about the separating of the sheep and the goats. And I believe he's calling out some things. And within the church, he's trying to call the world out of the church. Saints, listen to me. We all look way too much like the world. But brother, I'm being relevant. I'm being missional. I'm being attractional. Good for you. But the world is looking for something that looks completely unlike itself. You've heard me say this before because I say it every time I preach because I can't help it. And not just the church as an expression an expression of something of the kingdom. We are the manifestation of the kingdom on the planet. If God is not being seen through your life and my life, let me just tell you, God tests, apologetical evangelism, proclamation, outreaches, it's never going to work unless they see men and women who are different They look at us and say, what are you on? I want some of it. Thank you for asking. 
Wow. John 17, this amazing prayer that Jesus prayed. You've given me all these people. It says, they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. In the world, not of the world. In speaks to location. Of speaks to identification. Right now, I'm in this quasi-failed quest to give up carbs. I changed doctors, and he's a carb hater. I love carbs. Carbs include things like bread and potatoes and all the wonderful stuff. All of these simple sugars that just just hit our brain fast. Not just our waistlines, but bam! And we just, woo! We get happy. And we love carbs because of the instant gratification of carbs. Wow. But you see, this is the problem with being of the world is instant gratification. To the point now that people enjoy this More than they enjoy human relationships. Husbands and wives who've even given up physical intimacy because this is more immediate. The endorphins hit faster. Amazing. Romans 12 says, be not conformed to this world. But what does it say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'll just mention these last two in closing. Intervention and intercession. It's a fascinating passage in Joel 2. Yes, the same Joel 2 that prophesied Pentecost. But in verse 17, we find an interesting passage. It says, let the priest who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. You know, the temple porch represented where the populace could go. These were the people. But the altar represented a very unique place that was reserved only for the presence of God and the priests. And it's interesting is that he is calling us in this moment the tension between the two places, between the altar and the porch. And what you find, you have to find people that have an altar motivation. Everything is about just getting in the presence of God and worship. And that's an amazing thing. And then you've got folk over here that it's all about just them. It's all about evangelism. It's all about the lost. But there is a tension that God is calling the church in to weep between what we see over here and the perfection of that which we see over here. To weep between the porch and the altar. And listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, the church as a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2. Let me just tell you, we must learn to weep. We really do. We've learned to rejoice. We've learned to dance. We've learned to smile. But let me just tell you, part of our, part of our functional priesthood is to learn to weep. That we don't just look now and say, ah, bless his heart. I'm from the South. I just feel so, bless his heart. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about weeping at what sin is doing. 
weeping at the gap between the world and the kingdom, weeping. When we take a look at ourselves in light of the gospel, in the light of the glory of God. And let me just tell you, this weeping will drive us to our knees. Oh, Pastor Jim, I'm not an intercessor. I don't pray. This will make you pray. Leonard Ravenhill, teacher, preacher, prophet, generally cranky guy. He said this, the self-satisfied don't need to pray. The self-sufficient don't want to pray. And the self-righteous cannot pray. Romans 8, 26 again, it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And He intercedes for us, here we go, with groans. It's the same Greek root as the groaning we've been looking at. There is a groaning that the Spirit has when He intercedes through us, in us, and for us. And prayer, listen to me, saints, It's always the prelude for revival. I believe there's a reformation, restoration, and revival that God yet has for us. Not only in the church, but I believe as the nation as well. I really believe that. J.B. Phillips, author of the Phillips New Testament, maybe some of you have one. He was lamenting some years ago on the juxtaposition of the Acts Church and the Contemporary Church. And he says this, This is the church of Jesus Christ before it became fat and out of breath with prosperity. This is the church of Jesus Christ before it became muscle-bound by over-organization. This is the church of Jesus Christ where they didn't gather intellectuals to study psychosomatic medicine. They just heal the sick. And this is the church of Jesus Christ where they didn't say prayers. They prayed in the Holy Ghost. I don't know about you, but... That's the church that Christ died for right there. How many of you know the church is a bit of a reputation problem right now? Come on. And whether we're... There's no way I can say this and not get in trouble, but again, Pastor David can fix fix this next week, but he can fix it, David. But as you know that Part of the church has been identified with this current administration in our country. Now, whether we like it or not, we said, well, I didn't vote. I don't, doesn't matter. I'm talking about an identification now. The church did this. Very interesting. We've got a reputation problem to overcome. If we didn't have one before, we certainly have one now. Ravenhill again. We're trying to marry Christianity to prosperity, popularity, and personality. Oh, and it isn't working. And I believe God's coming to his church to not only restore its priorities, but to repair its reputation so that the revelation of God can be known. Revival. Waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And not just in an eschatological end-time sense, But I believe that there's a culture groaning 
for the sons of God to be revealed. Something different. And where are those sons and daughters right now? It's not where, it's whom. You and me. It's called the church. Some years ago, a very evil doctor, his name was Dr. Lamaze. He decided that men had to be present for the birth of their children. <laughs> you know, I look back at the movies of the 50s and 60s, and the men are just hanging out, drinking Cokes in the waiting room, you know, and they bring the little burrito out, you know, and say, Yeah, that's my boy. Surprised to find Dr. Lamaz wasn't a woman, but nevertheless, decided somewhere in the 70s or 80s or whenever it was, J.C., that men should be there to witness this thing. The first goal in Lamaz, don't pass out. That's just the very first. Stay upright. That's the first one. But you know, as my... As I've been with my wife to the birth of two of our children, there was groaning involved. And the most difficult time of the birthing process was what's known as transition. And it's that moment where the doctor tells the mom to be, don't do, don't push. And everything in the mom is like, if I don't push, I'm going to explode. <laughs> and, but it's that moment where you don't know it come here from Sikkim. You know, I mean, you don't, and, and the mom doesn't quite know what to do. And it's in that moment of transition that's the most intense observation. <laughs> Until finally the doctor gives the mom the all clear and says, now push. But it's in that moment of transition where it's the most uncomfortable, there's the most pain, and sometimes you don't know which way to go. You know you can't get unpregnant in that moment because <laughs> you're about to give birth to the alien. Something's getting ready to happen here. And yet the doctor is saying, don't. Many of us have found ourselves in that place of groaning of transition, of right in between something of realizing that we've been divinely impregnated with something that God wants to give give expression to in our lives, and yet, mm, let me just tell you, I believe the groaning is going to yield glory. Glory is going to come forth. You know why? Because that part of God and that thing of God that's always been on the inside of you, and not just the moment that you said yes when he unstopped your deaf ears and open your blind eyes but that part of God that's always been on the inside of you Psalm 139 God waiting to be expressed let me just tell you he's coming out he is coming out and I want to tell you it's going to happen in and through his church as well it's going to happen in Sterling it's already happening in Sterling it's going to happen in Chantilly, in D.C. It's going to happen around the world. God is going to make himself known. And from the very beginning, it's not just about snatching men and women out of hell. It's been about God making himself known. 
That's what it's been about from the very beginning. And now it's about God making himself known through you and me as sons and daughters, reflecting his paternity. Pray with me. Lord, as we come this morning, Lord, we thank you that it's not just about us getting the stuff, but it's being identified as sons and daughters. It's about your paternity being expressed in our life. God changes, but don't just modify us a little bit. Housebreak us a little bit. So we're not just messing on the carpet anymore. Transform us. Change us fundamentally in a way that only heaven can do it. Therapeutic methods, medication, meditation. Will, self-discipline, they're destined to fail. God, we yield ourselves to the process of transformation, of dying to that which needs to die so that what needs to be made alive can be resurrected by the power of your Spirit. God, bring the visibility to your church. And as Paul wrote, we consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. God, let that not just be a moment for the end of the age, but let that be a moment for this age right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you, church.